Have you fastened your seat belt? Are you ready for takeoff? On a plane, your tray tables have to be locked in place and your seat backs in the upright position. On a roller coaster, the main thing is to be locked in and ready for what you know is coming. Our trip through the Book of Judges is more like a ride on a roller coaster, as the action swings from dizzying heights of victory to the absolute pits of depravity. If you've never read this book, you have no idea what lies ahead. If you have read it, you can't help but shudder at the prospect of revisiting scenes that would be rated for mature audiences or over 18 on the movie screen. Viewer discretion advised. Reader beware. Leo Tolstoy's work, War and Peace, is considered a classic work of literature, but the book that rightfully holds the title of the most printed book and the one translated into the most languages, over 3,000 and counting, is the Bible. Since the Bible is not a novel, but rather a historical work that details the reality of the peoples and times it describes, it should not surprise us that among the collection of 66 books we call the Bible, there is a book of war and peace. While the Bible is full of accounts of wars and occasionally peace, no other book of the Bible brings together the cycle of war and peace in a more compact and vivid narrative than the book of Judges. It is much shorter than Tolstoy's work, but the lesson in it for us is universal and eternal. The book of Judges follows the book of Joshua, which follows the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. It's the continuation of the story of how God chose to make the family of a man named Abraham into a nation, which was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Then through the leadership of Moses, they were brought out of bondage in the Exodus. But due to the unbelief of the people, their entrance into the promised land of Canaan was postponed for 40 years. At this point, after the death of Moses, Joshua takes over the leadership of the nation and leads the twelve tribes of the sons of Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel, into the land of Canaan to take possession of it, according to the promise God had made to Abraham over 400 years earlier. If Joshua was about the same age as his fellow spy Caleb, who was 80 when Israel entered the land, the events in Joshua would cover a period of 30 years or so, seeing that Joshua died at the age of 110. Upon his death, we enter into the period covered by the record of the book of Judges, which takes us to the time of the prophet Samuel and the dawn of the monarchy, around the year 1000 B.C. Perhaps references to some of the conquests in the book of Joshua overlap the events in the time of the Judges, but in any case, we're looking at a period of 300 to 350 years. Depending on who's counting, there are 11 to 13 judges. Some were not called judges, specifically, but the record accords that role to them. Was Deborah a judge? What about Samuel or Eli? These last two appear in the next book, 1 Samuel. These last two appear in the next book, 1 Samuel. In any case, if we add up the length of years of each of them as being consecutive, we come up with 410 years, which is impossible to squeeze in, historically speaking. It's apparent that there were cases when some of the judges were contemporaries, as each judge usually exercised his ministry in a certain area of the country among some of the 12 tribes, but not all of them. Jephthah's activities were centered in Galead, 
and Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan River. Samson's battles were with the Philistines in the southwest area of Israel, and they very well could have been contemporaries. Samson is the last judge mentioned, but scholars believe Samuel was born before Samson died. But we don't want to get so tangled up in sorting out dates that we miss the obvious lesson God wants us to learn from Israel's experience during this period. What are those lessons? The most glaring lesson is that when Israel followed God, they prospered and had peace. When they turned aside to the gods of the Canaanites, they became enslaved and were attacked by their neighboring enemies. The formula, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, is repeated throughout the book and each time introduces a new wave of oppression. But on a broader scale, I see a further lesson that applies to us today, whether as nations or churches or families. Four times in the book of Judges we read, In those days there was no king in Israel, which would indicate that the book was written at a later date when there was a king in Israel. The book closes with that statement and adds, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't this the position that's gaining ground in our days? Each person owns his or her or their own truth. Each one acts in accordance with that truth. And let no one dare affirm that there is a universal standard of what is right and what is wrong. Was the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, included as a sort of apologetic for the establishment of a monarchy, preparing us for the next phase in Israel's history that we read about in 1 Samuel? God's original intention was that Israel should be guided by him as their king, and the prophet Samuel firmly opposed the people's idea of choosing a king. But God himself commanded Samuel to anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David, underscoring a lesson that is reinforced throughout God's word. We first see it in Numbers 27, verses 12 through 22 when God informs Moses that he would be allowed to look over into the promised land, but he would not enter it because he and his brother Aaron had rebelled against God's word at the waters of Meribah. Moses, again manifesting his love and concern for the people despite their oft-repeated failures, appealed to the Lord. He said, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the community who will go out before them and come back in before them and who will bring them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's community won't be like sheep without a shepherd. Joshua was God's answer to that prayer. This is the point I want to make here. That principle still holds in the New Testament. God's people need shepherds. On two occasions, Jesus is said to have seen the crowds of people who came to him, and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 9.36 says, When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark 6.34, Jesus got into a boat to go to a secluded place to spend time with his disciples, but the multitude saw them depart and ran on foot from the various towns and got there first. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things, and it grew late. This is the occasion when he multiplied five loaves and two fish so the disciples could feed 5,000 men and their families. Later in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent the 12 disciples out to preach, 
he instructed them not to go into any Samaritan town, but to go instead to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10, verse 6. Let's go back to the words of the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6, God sent a scathing rebuke against the shepherds of Israel who fed themselves instead of their flock. You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. They were scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. Verses 3 to 6 of Ezekiel 34. But the Ezekiel passage continues, and the Lord says that he himself would look for his flock and bring them back from all the places where they have been scattered. Verse 13 says, I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them back to their own land. He would shepherd them on the mounts of Israel, where they would feed in rich pastures. He would seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, strengthen the weak. I will shepherd them with justice. That scripture was fulfilled in part when Jesus came to earth. In John 10, when Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd, he said that all who had come before him were thieves and robbers. No wonder the sheep were lost. Their guides had not been faithful to proclaim righteousness, concentrating instead on self-righteousness. Jesus came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to bring back the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but the unfaithful shepherds would not allow it. We just returned from a trip to Israel, a modern country built by the children of Israel who have come from the four corners of the earth. I believe the prophecy of Ezekiel will only be fulfilled in its entirety when the Messiah returns in glory. But the story of how the Israelites have returned to their land is a sign that God has begun the process of carrying out His promise. Until that time, God has chosen to work through His sheep, who come from every tongue and tribe and nation. In that John 10 passage, as Jesus describes His work as the Good Shepherd, He says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. All human society has a need for leaders. In civil society, we call them presidents, kings, governors, mayors. In business, they are CEOs and sit on boards of directors. In Romans 13, 1-2, we read these clear words of God. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Paul urged in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and those who are in authority, so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I'm going to repeat that last part again to show what, why we should pray for them, so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We see what happens in nations and cities 
in large companies and small businesses when the leadership is weak or corrupt. The seeds of confusion and decline are sown, and the harvest is rebellion and distrust, poverty and oppression. Life is not tranquil or quiet. Prosperity and peace are the outgrowth of faithful, upright, and just leaders. And this is no less true of churches. Jesus provided for there to be authority in his churches. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. There's a lot of discussion about the degree to which the office of apostles and prophets is still in force in the church today, but no one disputes the role of pastors and teachers. What these leaders are called is not a critical issue. The New Testament calls them bishops, or overseers, elders, pastors, literally shepherds, and deacons. There are many small churches in the area where we live that do not have pastors, and that has an effect on their growth, to be sure. But even then, there's always a leader or a multiplicity of leaders who take on that role in the absence of a pastor. Someone opens the door to the meeting place, turns on the light, makes the announcements, leads the singing, and makes sure the bills are paid. There's always some sort of leadership. But if that leadership is weak, or worse, if it's morally corrupt, or overbearing and authoritarian, the flock will grow weak and scatter. They will become the victim of wolves. Leaders are held to a much stricter standard by God. James 3.1 not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Believers are instructed to examine closely the lives of those who lead them. Hebrews 13.7 Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you, as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. It's interesting that the emphasis is on the outcome of a minister's life not just a momentary one-off success they may have had. In the end, it is the Lord himself who judges how successful our lives have been, and it may be completely different from what we consider success. The question raised here is, have they been faithful to the Lord over the course of their lives? Imitate their faith. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Members are expected to obey their leaders, even as wives are to submit to the authority of their husbands, a position that is hotly contested in today's world. But then there's always the obligation on the counterpart. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5.25 And as for the leaders of churches, Peter wrote these words to remind them of their responsibilities. 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 4 says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the early years of our work on Medeta, when we finally had two or three families who joined together to constitute the church, 
I was advised by the pastor of the, the other evangelical church on the island, of another denomination, who counseled me on how to deal with Medatans in the church. He was from mainland Portugal and had recently been sent by his denomination to pastor the work on the island. The only way to pass to Medatans, he said, is with a rod of iron. I'm certain 1 Peter 5.3, which says, not lording it over those entrusted to you. I'm sure that was in his Bible, too, but apparently it was a passage he skipped over, at least in his pastoral practice. In closing, I see this as the main takeaway from this study of the book of Judges. God's people need leaders who are strong in the faith, unswerving in their loyalty to the chief shepherd, and who are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the flock entrusted to them. James warned us that we leaders will face a much stricter judgment as we must give an account of people's souls. But as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.1, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, a bishop or leader or pastor, he desires a noble work. It is truly noble. I've been involved in many different professions in my lifetime, including serving 12 years as consular agent on Madeira Island in the consular service of the U.S. State Department. But nothing compares to teaching the Word of God and seeking to guide His people into green pastures and in the paths of righteousness. But from the time I was 13, it has been and will continue to be the all-consuming desire of my soul to carry out this call until the final outcome of my life. We left Madeira Island six years ago, but we didn't leave the mission field. That's the reason why I'm preparing these podcasts. I'm compelled to do it. I cannot do otherwise. If there's one lost sheep out there somewhere that comes back to God through these lessons, I can only say, I only did what God called me to do. May God bless the faithful shepherds over his flock. May he raise up many others. The sheep need their ministry, and even more so in times of conflict and confusion. Should anyone have failed to notice, we need faithful, honest, capable leaders at all levels of our society. When those in power are not true to the charge God has entrusted to governments, the citizens they are responsible for will be like sheep without a shepherd, and in the words of Ezekiel, they will become food for the wild animals. Think about the leaders in your city, region, or country. How would you judge their leadership qualities? Then pray. Pray for those in authority. Pray for the people in general. Pray especially for God's people. The wild animals are looking about, and the flock of the Lord is in danger. The book of Judges gives a clear picture of what happens in a society that is leaderless and lawless. A society like the one we live in, which we see pictured in the news each day. In our next episode in this study of the book of Judges, entitled King for a Day, we'll analyze the cultural and political context in which the occupation of the Promised Land played out. It will help us gain a better understanding of the story of Israel's experiences and the times of the Judges. Until the next time.